Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast, and thank you for joining me today. I have a wonderful guest today, uh, my friend, uh, Errol Southers, and uh, through this, I'm going to kind of explore his journey and his life journey. So this is, again, um, just uh, interviewing people that have done wonderful things in life and, uh, and how they got to the position they are today. And um, so we're going to start off by saying, um, Errol, if you can introduce yourself and... Uh, and then we'll go from there. Certainly. Hi, Martin. Thank you. It's an honor to be here today. I'm Errol Southers. I'm a professor of the practice of national and homeland security at the University of Southern California, Saul Price School of Public Policy, and the director of the Safe Communities Institute. Okay, so we're going to get right into this. And um, I just want to know, you know, where did you grow up? And tell me, yeah, where did you grow up? And uh, where were you raised at? And tell me a little bit about, about how you've grown up and what you've done in your life when you were younger. Well, I grew up in New Jersey uh, in a little town uh, called Fanwood that I don't think they had curbs until about maybe a decade ago. Um, but I grew up in New Jersey during the 60s. So I went through a couple of years of riots there in the 60s. My parents were civil rights activists and educators. And I just want to start off by saying that I would certainly not be here today if it were not for my parents. They both prioritized education. So while all those other things we like to do as a kid in terms of sports and Boy Scouts and hanging out with your buddies was great, but it was always secondary to education. So I grew up there and I uh, left New Jersey to go to Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, where I was a biomed major and believe it or not, uh, finished and went on to medical school and got in medical school and didn't like that and moved to California and wound up in uh, finding my niche in law enforcement. And uh, here I am three law enforcement agencies later Santa Monica PD, the airport police, and the FBI uh, moved to academia, and here I am. Well, you know what? That's what I want to go back to is all the all the stuff that made you who you are today. So, you know, how many people did you have in your family? And uh, tell me what your childhood was like. What did you like to do, and what were your interests when you were growing up? Well, I have a brother who's two years younger, and uh, my father was uh, – former military. So he was very, very strict. And so we did everything. I mean, one week somebody had the yard work and, and one had the dishes and the dog and the next week we flipped it. So made our beds every day and our rooms got inspected every Friday. And um, he was pretty strict, but I was an athlete. I loved athletics. Um, I uh, was wrestling and I was, I grew up in a town where wrestling was a tradition. I and mean, we started wrestling in my town at age five and uh, went on to play football as well, and started bodybuilding when I was in high school. And the one thing I will say is, as I mentioned previously, my parents prioritized education. And so while sports were great, um, education was primary. But I have to admit, I mean, I lost my share of wrestling matches and I lost my share of bodybuilding contests until I started winning quite a few. And my parents were there when I won or lost. But the most important thing about them is they always emphasize two things do your absolute best and strive for excellence. So at the end of the day, whether it was an athletic event or an academic exam, they would say, did you do your best? And it was really simple. So I come from a, if you will, a discipline of being prepared, never being late, really organizing myself to do things ahead of time. And I think that's served me well in terms of the career path that I took through law enforcement and now into academia. But it was all about those things I did as a kid. Yeah, I was in the Boy Scouts. I'm an Eagle Scout. <laughs> um, loved to go camping and, and wound up uh, 
you know, I, I did a lot of things that traditionally, you know, African-American kids didn't do. I, you know, I was a lifeguard. Uh, I wrestled. I was the only black wrestler on my team for many years. Um, I was one of few of the black kids in my Boy Scout troop and became an Eagle. So, you know, for me, uh, there was never anything, it was never a challenge about being a minority. I'm used to being the only person that looks like me in the room and, and uh, that has served me well. And when you were young, like, so who, who would you say was your, your I, I know it sounds like your, your mom and dad were obviously some of your mentors. Did you have other mentors in your life that you looked up to at the time, some of your heroes at the time? They were primarily it. I mean, I have to admit that I grew up in an era, you know, with people like Muhammad Ali and Martin Luther King Jr. Um, those were people that were in my house. My parents were really aggressive about me understanding and learning African-American history. Um, I had a uncle who lived on 125th Street in Harlem, two blocks from the Apollo Theater. So I have seen everybody from James Brown to Donny Hathaway and Roberta Flack. I mean, I've seen everybody. So all those old vinyl albums that people have, I've seen those people live for $7.50. Uh, the Temptations, I mean, I've seen everybody. So I have to say as far as, as mentors, I would say, honestly, just my parents. I had a couple of coaches, a football coach and a wrestling coach who, who I really relied on and gave me good advice. And, and what's interesting about those athletic coaches is they would always say that my academics and my schoolwork was most important. And that was really interesting that a coach would say that because you want they want you to win. But they understood how important school was, and I really appreciate that. And then how did you prioritize when you were, when you were in high school? Um, because it seems like you said you went to, you went on to, to apply to um, a great, you went to a great undergraduate school, by the way. But um, how did you prioritize? Did you get really good grades through all throughout high school? And how did you prioritize and balance uh, school and work? I have to actually, your academic, your academic work as well as, um, you know, your athletics. Well, there was a schedule. You know, I got up in the morning, um, went to school. I went to practice in the afternoon, you know, walked home from practice, whether it was football or, or wrestling, came home. First thing I did was sat down and started homework. Then I would eat dinner. Then I would finish homework. And I did that every day. And, you know, we trained six days a week in my town for wrestling and football. So I got used to that. As far as prioritizing, it was really simple. Um, I just stayed in a schedule. But I have to tell you, I was not your typical quote unquote student. Things came hard to me. I, I knew that I had to read things two and three and four times. But the one thing that was different was I never felt like I couldn't get it. I understood that I had to do things two or three times more than anybody else, but I did it. And even when I got to Brown, you know, I, when I got to Brown, I ran into a lot of students who had already had calculus already and had had physics already and inorganic chemistry. I didn't. So it just meant when they were partying, I was studying. Now, I'd get to the party later, but I had to sit and study because I knew that it was going to take more work from me. I never whined about it. I just did it. And, you know, when they got an A, I got an A. So it was just a lot of hard work. And you've always been – I know you're like this fitness guru. I really look up to you because I've – I'll see you around campus sometime and you're like in great shape and you, you go on these wonderful trips where you're always exercising. So have you always been into like health and fitness ever since high school or was it earlier? I'll tell you a secret. I was a young fat kid, um, got teased, you know, um, got bullied. And I ran into a couple of guys I played football with and 
they also wrestled and I started wrestling. And all of a sudden, this one year in the eighth grade, I dropped like 30 to 40 pounds. And in doing that, I started working out with weights and all of a sudden, I had this body that was emerging. It was weird. And I just kept weight training. My dad didn't believe I was serious. So he said, I'll buy weights for you, but we're going to split the cost. So I had a part-time job. I was delivering papers and and I had another job where I worked in a hamburger place. And, you know, we'd go over to Sears. I'm dating myself now. Sears Roebuck and those plastic vinyl coated weights. And, and he buy half, he split the cost with me. And next thing I know, those weights weren't enough. And I joined a gym. I had to walk five miles to the gym. I walked five miles there several times a week. And I walked in the gym and I saw a bodybuilder for the first time in my life. His name was Fred Shandor. He was a probation officer. I'd never seen anybody with a body like this. And I was going there as a wrestler to sit in a sauna to lose weight because we were always starving and losing weight, trying to make weight. And I went, holy cow. And this guy went to Mr. America every year. And we got to be friends. And he put me on a routine. And next thing you know, here I was, you know, like 14, 15 years old, and my body started to get really freaky. I mean, we're talking about, you know, there's no steroids. We're not talking about any drugs. And when I went to, and the cool part about it, and I have to say this, I was the only black wrestler on my team. In my town, wrestling was a tradition. And so when we went to meets, especially when we went to to away meets, it was the other teams were looking like, holy cow, who's going to wrestle that guy? What weight is he wrestling? And the intim- I use that intimidation factor to the max. But, yeah, I've always been a fitness guy. Um, we'll talk about this, I'm sure. But I got lucky enough to meet my wife 27 years ago, who's also a fitness person. In fact, I was training and sponsored at World Gym, and she was training and personal trainer at World Gym. And somebody introduced us, and a year later we got married, and that was 26 years ago. So wow. It's been like that. And what was your what was your diet like at the time? Like, how did you stay? I mean, how did you stay diet wise? You you you'd go to school and you make your own pre your lunch for school. So you're pretty disciplined about your meals and. Well, uh, I gotta I gotta tell you, as a as a high school kid, you kind of can get away with anything. Your metabolism is a little different. Um, I ate things then that I could have never I never have eaten since, uh, and I was you know I live by the scale, so I have to be honest with you. My nutrition was awful. The only thing I was concerned about was the weight going down. So while I was still eating things I wouldn't normally eat, my weight was going down because I was starving and sweating and training. Um, my mom hated that time of year. She hated it because every year at Thanksgiving, I didn't eat because wrestling season started the next day. And she'd make meals and we were just at odds with each other. Because my mom, if you ever had met her, you don't come to her house and not eat, Okay. Everybody who walks in the house, you eat. And she was just at odds with me. But I will tell you, when I got ready to wrestle, she'd be sitting in that front row cheering for me. She hated when I was starving, but she she loved me when I was wrestling. So, But my diet was terrible. I mean, you know, I was a high school kid. I wrestled, um, I wrestled believe it or not, because I was bodybuilding. I wrestled 136 as a 15-year-old sophomore. I wrestled 168 the next year. That's how much weight I gained in muscle. But when that meet was over, we went to McDonald's and it was always a contest to see who could gain the most weight in 24 hours. And I gained from like seven to 10 pounds after a match the next day. Wow. So it was awful. It was a different time. You know, we had a lot of fun with it, but uh, 
I realized how unhealthy it really was. <laughs> and they, and your parents, you said, they were, were they both teachers? Your your parents were both educators. My my parents were both educators. My dad was a naval architect, um, and he worked at a classified facility in New York. He traveled twenty five miles each day from New Jersey to commute, and he was a draftsman. So he designed naval warships, aircraft carriers, destroyers. So all my friends grew up building model cars. My brother and I grew up building model ships. Wow. And my mom was an educator. By the way, she was the first African-American woman to graduate from the Rutgers School of Pharmacy. Wow. And she went on after she was a pharmacist to start teaching biology, chemistry. So again, all kids had normal stuff in their houses, like, you know, cars and toys. My brother, we had a model of the eye that you could take apart the eye and look at the iris and the lens. I had a model of the heart in our house because I thought I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. I started going to hospitals when I was in junior high school to visit doctors to see what they did because I was going to medical school. I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And so, yeah, both my parents were educators and they hammered away at my dad used to always say, hey, you've got friends on your team. I realize that they're in the newspaper every week because they're superstars. He said, but when all the shouting is over, we're going to see where they are. and We're going to see where you are. And he was right. Now, did you ever at one point, I'm sure this, I'm sure uh, I have friends that get the bodybuilding bug. Um, was there any time in your uh, in your life where you said, I want to be a full-time bodybuilder? Did that ever happen to you? No, no. And I'll tell you why. Because when I moved to California, I started training at World. So guys that you know as household names are, are best friends of mine. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lou Ferrigno, Franco Colombo, Robbie Robinson, Sean Ray. Those are all guys that I knew. But, you know, I won't mention his name. But I gave a, a guy who I idolized in high school as a bodybuilder. This guy was a Mr. Olympia competitor, a Mr. Universe, just world class. And he asked me to give him a ride home one day. And at the time, I was a police officer in Santa Monica. And I gave him a ride to his, his apartment in, in Venice. And I went, holy cow, this is where this guy lives? This is the guy I see in all the magazines? And I said, and I just, it really rocked my world with regards to reality. Here I was with medical, dental, a retirement, and an income, and I was taking this guy who was my idol to his apartment, just a fantastic human being, but I was really shocked. I'm thinking I'm going to drive him to this multi-million dollar condo looking at the beach, and it was everything but that. So that convinced me that I needed to do that. And I got to tell you, Joe Gold, who was the original owner of Gold Gym, he said the same thing to me. He says, you have a career. He said, as long as you keep bodybuilding a hobby, you'll be successful. And he was right. Wow, that's amazing. So I want to get back into that for sure later. But let me ask you a question. When you were in high school, before before you had that experience, were you thinking, I'm, is it, was this an option for me? Were you thinking that at all? No. I never thought about being a professional athlete. I never thought about being a full-time bodybuilder. Um I always, I guess it was my parents' influence. It was always a deal of, as my dad used to always say, they can never take your education away from you. You can get hurt and your athletic career. You could get cut from a team and your athletic pursuits. He said, but you'll always have your mind and your brain. He said, as long as you keep that a priority, you can do anything you want. So no, I have to say my parents pretty much influenced me that athletics or professional sports was not an option. And I mean, I grew up with guys, Ronaldo Nehemiah was in my high school. 
Um, you know, yeah, we, Skeety and I were good friends and he went on and broke all kinds of world records and became a world-class hurdler. I went to school with, with guys that were phenomenal, but at the end of the day, my parents were right and I'm glad that I stuck with academics. And um, what made you choose Brown? Did you, did you apply for other universities as well? What made you choose Brown? Well, the reason I'm smiling is because you know how moms are, right? So she doesn't want me too far away. So I have to be honest with you. I went to a fantastic public high school, Scotch Plains Fanwood High School. Um, I applied to seven of the eight Ivies and I got into four of them. And my mom figures, oh, great. He's going to go to Princeton. And I was like, no, I'm getting out of New Jersey. I don't care what happens. I'm getting, I'm leaving New Jersey. So I went to Brown for a weekend. I went to all the schools that I applied to and went to Brown for a weekend. And I just found that the African-American community there and the Hispanic community and the Asian community, um, they got along really well. They were very tight. Um, they were very smart. And I said, you know, this is the place for me. And I went there and I had no regrets in Martin. It was to this day, it was the four hardest years of my life, but I would never do it a different way. I have friends from Brown that I've maintained throughout my life, but it was a wise choice. I'm glad I did it. And I was really humbled to be accepted there. I applied with three other classmates from my high school. All four of us got in, all four of us graduated. And I'm really glad that I had the Brown experience. And what made, what made it difficult for you? Like what was the most challenging part of that? And how did you get through that? Well, you had a school that at the time, 92% of the people who were pre-med got into medical school. 60% of the people who entered the class pre-med by sophomore year were gone. By junior year, it dropped again. By the time you got to be seniors, if you survived, there was no, if you will, wonder about how that acceptance rate to med school was so high. It was a survival issue. So what made it so difficult? Again, I was up against the, the one of the most incredible things for me was to run into all these black kids who had gone to private schools and had courses in high school as AP classes, which I didn't even know what an AP class was. They had already had that when they got to Brown. I mean, you know, Sidwell friends in DC where Obama's kids went and Clinton's kids went. My friends were graduates of Sidwell Friends. So they're taking a class in freshman year as a review. I'm taking a class freshman year as brand new trying to survive. You know, we had classes there that typically in most universities would be two semesters. Like inorganic chemistry at Brown was a two-semester course at other places. It was ranked number three in the country at the time behind MIT and Harvard. By the time you finish that inorganic chem class, after freshman year, first semester, half the people who were pre-med were out. So they had what I would call screening classes that by the time you got through the first two to three years of Brown, if you were still around in that degree focus, you were, you were a survivor. And I wound up being a survivor, but it was due to a lot of hard work. And I'll be honest with you, I wound up academic probation. After my first semester, scared the you-know-what out of me because I had never had a grade lower than a B. Here I was with two classes out of four that I was going to fail. So it was an eye-opener. And then we'll talk about the following year. You know, here I was um, there. And uh, 
that freshman year, I don't know, we took over Brown University as students of color. We took over the university for three days. And that was very interesting. And here I was on academic probation in a major protest, risking my academic career because of a social justice cause that I really believed in. Wow, that's amazing. And what what do you think made you get through that? What were the things that if you were to tell people, hey, this is how I got through it, what 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 pushed you during that time? I'll say one thing that pushed me was I never believed I would fail. I never believed I wouldn't make it. The other thing that got me through it, Martin, to be honest with you, is I used to always compare to myself to other people. And I'd say, you know what? There's some people I know who got through this. There's no way that I'm not at least as intelligent or as good as they are. But the most important thing, I didn't believe that an institution like Brown accepted me by mistake. They didn't accept me because of affirmative action. And even if they did, I always have to remind people, if you're one of those folks out there that believes that affirmative action takes people that aren't qualified, rest assured of one thing. There are not two sets of exams in these institutions. There's an exam. So if you're not supposed to be there, no matter what color or gender you are, that exam doesn't care what color or gender you are. And if you don't pass it, you don't pass it. If you do, you do. And so that was really important for me. And I just felt like I was in the right place for the right reason. And I never had any doubts that I would complete the institution and get my degree successfully. That's amazing. And so when you when you completed your degree, um, what was the next step for you? Well, I stayed an extra year uh, working in Providence because I had spent two years working in an endocrinology research lab on steroid research, believe it or not, because I was working in endocrinology. And they offered me a job when I graduated. So I stayed there an extra year. I was applying to medical school, but I was really like, eh, you know, I need to get off the East Coast. I'm tired of these winters where we got three to four feet of snow and it stays cold forever. And I said, I'm going to get out of here. And just as I was ready to leave Providence to move to L.A., wouldn't you know it, on Friday the 13th of that month, I get accepted to the College of Medicine and Dentistry in New Jersey, Rutgers Medical School. So I went through the summer program, met some really great people there, uh, got through the summer program, started the first semester. You know, you've got gross anatomy and histology and all these other things. I'm working on cadaver every day. And Martin, it got to the point where, it, and I hats off and kudos to all these folks, all my colleagues and my frat brothers who are now physicians and physicians today, because that first year of medical school, I thought Brown was hard. It made Brown look like a speed bump. I mean, the only you couldn't go to the bathroom without taking a book with you. And it was brutal. And finally, I said, you know, this is not what I want to do. And I packed up my stuff, told my roommates I was leaving, paid the rent for my room for the rest of the year. I said, hey, let somebody else stay here. Got on a plane, flew to L.A. and never looked back. So why did you choose L.A.? Tell me about that journey. What got you to L.A.? That was purely a, a bodybuilding West Coast thing. Um, I had come here the year or two before. Um, I knew Joe Gold and the guys at World Gym. I loved the place. I came out one year with my brother's roommate at Brown. My brother went to Brown, too. Um, his roommate was from L.A., and I came out with him one year over the Christmas holiday. And we're driving around L.A. in his fiat spider convertible it's 75 degrees and it's christmas and i'm going to the gym every day 
I'm hanging out with my friends in LA at night. I go, and I'm, and I go back to Providence and there's a snowstorm that pretty much did it for me. So there weren't any other places on the map that I wanted to go. I came here. And like I said, if I could have done it over again, I would have done it sooner. So how did you, uh, how did you, I mean, what did you get a job at? Like, what did you, I mean, that's a, you take a big risk, you come and you really just arrived in LA with not a lot of options, I'm sure. And so what did you do and how did you get into the bodybuilding scene? And how did you get connected with all this? We'll talk about the big risk. So the first thing I did is I got this apartment in Venice. So now I'm close enough to the gym and I can train and I can't find a job. Here I got an Ivy League degree, right? I'm thinking, okay, I'm something. I must be somebody, I've, I'm, you know, and I couldn't get a job. So I see this job posting in the paper and it was for an animal control officer. I said, wow, that sounds kind of interesting. I'm from the East Coast. I don't know that animal control officer is slang for dog catcher, okay? So I apply and I go in and you gotta understand that I'm like at least 30 pounds bigger than I am now. It was obvious what, who, what, what I did. And I walk in there and it was the Santa Monica Monica Police Department was, you know, they were the animal control um, department was in there. And three of the guys on the interview panel were police officers. And I walk in and they're like, don't you want to be a police officer? And I get, I said, for what? And they said, well, and they're looking at me. I mean, and I'm like this picture of fitness. And, and they said, you don't want to be a cop? I said, no. And they said, okay. And so I joined animal control. And who do I become friends with while I'm working every day are all these police officers who are in a constant recruitment mode every time I'd run into them, right? And one of them was a bodybuilder, African-American bodybuilder on Santa Monica PD's department. And finally, he just convinced me. He said, Errol, what are you doing? He says, you're doing the same thing we do. He says, you're driving around, you're on patrol, you're out here every day. He says, but you're going to quadruple your salary, have a retirement. He said, and have fun. So here I was. I went to an animal control academy, believe it or not. I learned how to handle everything from cows to, 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 to pythons. Um, and 10 months later, I'm in the police academy. Um, two years after that, cause I went and got a teaching credential. I'm the first Santa Monica police officer who's on a police academy staff and faculty. I was a drill instructor and a lecturer. And then I'll tell you the story, but two years after that, I'm in the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. Wow. And, and let me ask you this. When you were, uh, got into, at the same time as you were a police officer, I assume you were still bodybuilding. Tell me a little bit how you met um, Joe Gold and, and and Arnold and all of them. How did you get caught up into this? Uh, it's a totally different, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a niche part of society. So how did you get connected to that? Well, Joe accepted me right away because he, he really respected the fact that I was a police officer. He respected the fact that I had a career. Um, Joe was a real big influence on me and, and a mentor about having a career. And he really respected that. In fact, Joe had a nickname for everybody. And I'd walk in and he'd just say, officer. He'd say, officer. <laughs> and I'll tell you the story. It's going to sound really strange. So obviously, I'm an animal patrol. And I know Arnold from the gym. We become friends. And I had been over to Arnold's house before, and, and he had a he had a big, incredible yellow lab named, named Conan. And so I'm working patrol one night, 
and there's this barking dog call at Arnold's address. And I know it's his address because I've been to his house several times. And I said, I'll take that call. So I take the call and I get there and Conan had gotten out of the house and Arnold was away. He was in Europe. Conan got out of the house. So I knew how to open the gate. I open the gate, take Conan out, put him in my police car, take him to the shelter in Santa Monica because I had worked there, put him in a kennel, call Arnold's office the next morning to say, hey, tell Arnold that Conan's in jail. He needs to come and get him. So Arnold comes back from Europe, gets Conan out of the shelter, thanked me profusely. And we have been extremely close ever since then. And that was 40 years ago. Yeah, that's amazing. And how was it? Um, there was a lot of other a lot of other bodybuilders in there at the time. As, as, I, as I said, it was a, a very close knit community. Um, and I'm sure that you saw a lot of this, like you said, a lot of the struggles that a lot of them had. Um, do you stay in contact with a lot of those? Or do you, do you still remain friends with a lot of those people in the community? And then also, I, I also know that you still are into very much into fitness and, and, and taking care of yourself. So you've continued that. And and so can you tell me a little bit about that as well? Sure. Well, I got to know those guys really well. Um, again, because we were in the gym every day together. We got to be friends. I'm still friends with many of them. As you know, many of them were actors. Uh, several of them were in um, Gladiator with Russell, Russell Crowe. Many of them were in Arnold's films as well. Uh, several of them became personal trainers, and I know them. The two gyms are very, very were located at the time, very close to each other, Golds and World. I trained at World and stayed away from Golds because many of the guys I competed against were at Golds. I didn't want them to see me. Whenever I'd go to Golds to train every now and then, I'd be totally covered up because I didn't want anybody to know what I looked like. And, you know, the cool part about bodybuilding is the, is the freak-out factor. You get to the contest. You're all covered up. Nobody knows what you look like, and you take your clothes off to weigh in, and guys just go. And I can't say it because we're on a family podcast here, but they look at you and go, and you knew you were ready. You knew you were ready. I lived with a guy um, who's a former Mr. Universe winner, um, and, I mean, he was – he. if I had a personal trainer, if you will, during the time I was bodybuilding, um, he was the guy, and uh, – yeah, I mean, it was just a community that stays very close. And I see them now because they come over to USC. They'll come over with Arnold. Everybody's much leaner than they used to be. So that old myth about being a bodybuilder and then getting incredibly obese, that's all not. It's all BS. Most of these guys are really fit. They're lean. They still work out every day. Arnold still works out every day. Um, we used to train in the morning, and we'd wind up – I'd do my cardio almost routinely. I'd wind up next to him on the life cycle. Here we are 40 years later, and the first thing he'll say to me when he sees me is, how much time did you put on a bike today? Because, you know, we just do that. Um, but again, we got to be just very, very close. Today, what do I do? Look, I'm talking to you right now, and I'm coming out of my home gym, uh, which looks like a mini version of Heritage Hall at USC, because I've got footballs and helmets and jerseys, and but I've got all my equipment in there. When COVID started, I had just started putting together my own gym. My wife and I train every day. Whenever we travel, and I've been humbled to have been all over the world, we always travel and stay in a hotel that has a fitness center. I'm coming back from Costa Rica, my second home. Uh, when I go to Costa Rica, I, I take my bike. I cycle there. So fitness has been a way of life for me. I think it's the reason that I stay so energetic and I stay so alive. And fortunately, I have a partner, a life partner who's the same way. In fact, she's in the gym right now. 
and it works out very well. So fitness is just a way of life for me. You want to, hell for me would be not being able to work out in the morning. That would be hell. That's, you know, there are, if you will, sacrifices, and then there are other things that you do. And the sacrifice for me is when I get up in the morning and I can't get up early enough to train, that's when I don't have a good day. So I always make sure I do that. Yeah, I, I love that because every time I see you, you have so much energy and you look like you just stepped out of a bodybuilding magazine. So I'd say, what is that man doing? Well, uh, I don't know about that. I mean, my body has changed, but I've certainly adapted to it. And uh, you, you, I'll say this, Martin, as you get older, remember, it's not about training harder. It's about training smarter. I, I agree with that. I agree with that totally. And and about diet as well, right? And I know Absolutely. that you're really, you're good with your health and diet. I know that as well. Absolutely. Uh, let me ask you this. Okay, so, and I guess that takes us to the, the other part of your journey, which I think is the law enforcement part. Um, you started with, you were, how long were you, how long were you with Santa Monica PD? And then what was your journey in law enforcement? Because you've done just about everything in law enforcement and it, and it kind of brings us to what you're doing today. And you can kind of go over your, your journey in terms of that. Sure. Interesting career journey. I, I started at Santa Monica and as I mentioned previously, became a field training officer, um, went to the academy and I was a drill instructor at the academy and on the faculty there. And I was on the crime impact team in Santa Monica. And while I was a drill instructor, though, however, I ran into a cadet. And she says to me one day, you know, you need to meet my husband. I said, what's did he do? What does he do? She says, well, he's an FBI agent. I said, oh, OK, you know, I kind of had my typical police law enforcement, I'm sorry, police FBI kind of challenge that we have there occasionally. And I said, all right, I'll meet the guy. She was African-American. Her husband was African-American. And this guy was a Berkeley Law graduate. Here he was from Bolt Law School in the FBI. If you looked up FBI FBI agent in the dictionary, you would have seen his picture. He was amazing, incredibly bright, fit, good looking, really just top. And I said, wow. And I, at the time, I was considering some agencies. I was thinking about leaving Santa Monica to go to the feds. I didn't know where. When I met him, that was it. So he and two other black agents really sort of recruited me and got me ready for the, uh, the written exam. I maxed the written exam. They got me ready for the oral, and I did the same with the oral exam. It was 1984. I'll never forget that. And uh, the Olympics were coming up. And, um, you know, I, I affectionately called the Olympics because we had a lot of things going on in L.A. at the time. And everybody was having battles over who was going to be in charge of the terrorism effort. And long story short, we had so many SWAT teams in L.A. We called it the 1984 swat and Weapons Expo. But as you know, nothing happened. And during that time frame, I got accepted to go to Quantico. And I'll tell you, Martin, I'm really proud of that. They had 15,000 applicants that year, and they took 320 appointees that year. So it was competitive. I went on to the FBI, spent four years. I was born in intelligence and terrorism. I wound up on SWAT. And uh, I spent the majority of my FBI career undercover. I worked on two classified undercovers there. I was going to be destined for the East Coast. And I was going through a divorce at the time. My son was, was in San Diego. I didn't want to be 3,000 miles from my son. And because I had not burned any bridges when I left Santa Monica PD, the chief who had a policy of not taking people back said, you know, if you want to come back here to be close to your son, I'll bring you back to the department, top step. And so I left the FBI and went back to Santa Monica. I was there for another three and a half years. I went back top steps, 
And six months later, I was working gangs and I wound up becoming a Superior Court qualified gang expert. And I worked gangs until uh, 1991 when I left the FBI to go on to a place that you probably don't know on my resume. I left there to go to the LA County Museum of Art where they had a county police department and the largest security guard force in the museum in the United States. And I wound up becoming chief there and an assistant vice president of visitor services at LACMA. That's amazing. And then what is it, what, are the, what did you do after that? You've done so many things. So right after that, did you decide to go ahead and did you get your master's after? Where did, where did your master's and PhD, where did that uh, play into it? Or did you just go straight to the PhD program? No, uh, I wish it was that easy. I stayed at LACMA for a while. I got recruited over to the city of Long Beach and I was in the city manager's office. I was director of their citizen police complaint commission, one of the first civilian oversight commissions in the United States. And they had a gang war going on in Long Beach between the Cambodians and Latinos. So the city manager knew my background and said, hey, listen, I'd like you to take over this gang prevention program we have in Long Beach because we had 38 kids get killed in the space of about two years. He said, we got to do something here. I got to tell you that through the work of some incredible collaborations I had there in the community, the Hispanic community and the Cambodian community, we put together a gang truce between those two gangs in five weeks. We had them sitting down in a church, eating pizza, agreeing to not shoot at each other anymore. I uh, left Long Beach to come back to LACMA, believe it or not, because LACMA had just acquired the May Company building, which is now the... Um, the movie museum in LA and I've got to get over there. I just joined. Um, but in any event, I went back to LACMA and that's when I had started my master's degree. Um, and I started and finished my master's degree there. And uh, here I was now I'm, I'm there and Arnold comes along because I had a consulting business. I was consulting to museums and schools and Arnold says, listen, I'm thinking about starting up a after school program. I want you to be the security consultant for the schools. So we started Arnold's All Stars, which is now a national program in four schools in LA. We were in middle schools and Arnold said to them, give me the four toughest schools you've got in the LA Unified School District. And uh, we did that. And I'll, I'll cut to the chase. Uh, the recall effort started and everybody was wondering if Arnold was going to run for governor. And we were in his office that day. He was going to go on the Jay Leno show. And we we're just all sitting in his office laughing and joking because he was going to go on Jay Leno. And he hadn't even told us if he had decided. But we pretty much figured he's not going to do this. He's just going to jerk Jay's chain long enough and finally say he's not going to run. So I'm leaving Arnold's office and I'm driving to my office at the museum. And I get a phone call. And someone says, your life's going to change. I said, what are you talking about? He said, your buddy's running for governor. I said, no, he's not. I just left him. And I get to work. And all over the news is, is that Arnold's running for governor. And it went from being able to walk into a school with him with maybe a dozen people around him to walking into a school with him with several hundred people wanting to be around him. And he went through the campaign and I went through the campaign with him. He became governor. Six months after he became governor, I was one of his appointees to his administration. And I wound up the director, the uh, deputy director for critical infrastructure protection in the governor's office of Homeland Security, being responsible for all the possible terror targets in the state of California. And how was that experience? I mean, because you basically went from, I mean, that's a massive jump. I mean, your life was, like you said, very much kind of stable. And now here you are in Sacramento in the capital. So how was that for you? And that's a major, major, uh, I mean, it's 
California is one of the largest, it's almost in some way a country because it's so large and in terms of what it produces. And um, so tell me a little bit about that. How was that a challenge for you? It was a huge challenge, Martin, because we stood up the office from scratch. And at the time they had seven, what they call UASI cities. The UASI acronym stands for Urban Area Security Initiative. So I had seven primary cities in the state that I was responsible for. I traveled to Sacramento every Monday morning and sometimes I'd wind up on a plane twice a day, Monday through Thursday, going to one of those seven cities. And I did that for two years. In the meantime, I was responsible for a Homeland Security Presidential Directive to identify, prioritize, and protect the terror targets in the state. And to your point about being a small country, we had twice as many critical infrastructure targets in California as the second largest number which came out of texas so it was an incredible undertaking i believe at the time gdp in california put us like 15th in the world so if california were a country it would have been 15th it was massive and i didn't sleep i worked seven days a week it was an incredible responsibility secretary chertoff was the secretary of homeland security at the time he appointed me to the working group that eventually developed the National Infrastructure Protection Plan, which is still in place today. We developed the original plan. But while I was there working in Arnold's administration, I had a clearance, of course, a secret clearance from the FBI. I started working on a project with one of my professors and vice deans at USC. And during the course of working on that classified project to identify these targets, he says, why don't you come to USC? I said, oh, my God. So now Arnold's in the middle of a campaign to be reelected. And he's asking me to go to USC to join the terrorism center we had there, CREATE, the Center for Risk and Economic Analysis and Terrorism Events. So I went to Arnold and I said, Arnold, listen, I've got this opportunity to go to SC with the terrorism center. You're in a campaign to be reelected. He said, Errol, hold it right there. He said, first of all, we're always going to be friends. He said, second of all, are you going to be able to spend more time with your family and less time on an airplane and still contribute to the Homeland Security effort? I said, well, yeah. He says, done deal. He says, you need to do that. He says, I'm going to be fine. We're going to be fine. Let's do that. So I left the administration and went to create at USC. And then when did you get your, where, I mean, you're such a busy person. How did you fit in a PhD? <laughs> and, 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 not, and not only a PhD, but in one of the most difficult and challenging universities in the country. Well, I'll tell you, Martin, that's where a mentor becomes really important. I have a mentor back east. He's a fraternity brother of mine. He's a retired Army colonel. And he happened to, and besides his military career, we met in the museum world when he was the director of security for the Holocaust Museum in D.C., as well as the director of the National Gallery in D.C., which, as you all know, is the nation's art museum. And he challenged me. I'll tell you, two times in my career, I got both my degrees because of Jim Davis. The first one I got was when I was thinking about a master's degree, we were at a conference at the Smithsonian, and he says, when are you gonna get your master's? And I said, I'm not working on one. He says, why not? He says, Jim, that's gonna take three years. He looks at me, and talk about tough love. He looks at me and says, well, it's really simple. In three years, you'll either have your degree or you'll still be talking about it. So he shamed me into that. And so I get my master's degree, and I'm cruising along thinking I'm somebody. And he says, so when are you gonna get your doctorate? I said, why do I need a doctorate? He says, well, let me ask you a question. You're on the faculty as an adjunct professor at USC, right? Yeah. What degree do your colleagues have? I said, doctorate. He goes, well, 
I don't think I need to say anymore, do I? So I applied for my doctoral degree and I got into the program, started working on it. And Martin, you may not know this, but I'm in the degree program and I'm about four to five classes in when I got nominated by President Obama to head the TSA and the White House said, one of the things you're going to have to do since you're a nominee, you need to withdraw from the doctoral program because, you know, we own you. So I withdrew from the doctoral program and, um, you know, I went through the confirmation process. TSA assistant secretary, as you know, goes through two sets of confirmation processes, two Senate committees that both want their pound of flesh. And I got through both successfully. Then, of course, the political gamesmanship started. I withdrew from confirmation. I had to reapply to the doctoral program at USC to get accepted to finish the program. I finished the program, but not without some challenges. I had some incredible back issues. You don't realize how many surgeries bodybuilders have until you have a surgery and you start talking to your buddies. And, and so I wound up having back surgery and delayed my doctorate again for about a year, finished my doctorate after the surgery, and here I am. So and lo and behold, everything happens for a reason. While I never got confirmed and didn't join the Obama administration, had that happened, I likely would not have returned to USC to reapply and get accepted to the program to finish my doctorate, to become a full professor of practice and become a center director. So there are powers greater than us that guide us in a way. And you've got to be smart enough to understand when you're being guided and just go with it. And that's what I've always done. So he, I, I love all this because this is about following your passions again, because it seems like you've been guided by following your passions your whole life. I love that. I love that way of looking at life. And um, so tell me what you do now. And and here's the big question. What is the future for you? <laughs> um, well, now I am a professor of practice at National and Homeland Security. So you're right. I've always followed my passion. I have never had a job. I've had a career. And I've never gotten up in the morning and not look forward to going to do what I'm going to do. My most important role today is to educate people. I love mentoring people. I have five former students that are in the FBI. I have several students in the State Department. I have two students in the Joint Regional Intelligence Center. I have students that are in DHS, and they write me emails now talking about their incredible careers. I had two students last year that got their master's and went on to LAPD. So that's what I do now. I sit on seven doctoral committees. I'm the chair of three of them. I'm working on some incredible research projects. The most interesting one is a research project where we're working on the attributes of building design as it influences occupants' behavior in an active shooter incident in a school or an office. So we have built a school and an office in the virtual world. We built what we call an enhanced school and an office in the virtual world. I put you in the environment an active shooter enters and we look to see what you do to either shelter in place or escape. And then we put you in the other environment where we change the building design to see if you can shelter in place or escape more easily. So we're working on that project now. We had to alter it a bit when COVID came because we couldn't put people in the goggles in our laboratory. We had to work on a keyboard. So we're doing that and we're just finishing a proposal now for an additional piece of work in that space. 
I have been teaching and been in Israel for 15 years. I teach at the Interdisciplinary Center there in Herzliya. Uh, I teach at the International Institute for Counterterrorism. It is the prime counterterrorism institute in the world. I am so humbled to be part of their faculty. I also teach at the University of Paris in France. I just got a note from them this morning because they want to collaborate on a new project. And they have the same homegrown issue that we do. So, Martin, the really cool thing about this is I had a passion for domestic terrorism that formed in the FBI. I followed that passion into my doctoral dissertation. I finished my doctoral dissertation and got a degree in that space. I wrote a book on that subject. I teach a class on that subject. And I teach that subject in the United States, in Israel, and France. And it would have never happened at a place other than the Price School at USC. So I really am living the dream. And, and you haven't even talked about what's behind you, which is the, what you want to talk about for a minute or so on the initiative. I have some last minute questions I want to ask you. Uh, uh, but if you can talk about that initiative that you're working on as well. Absolutely. You know, I became a police officer and I'm going to say this so people understand. I did not like cops. And so when I got asked the question when I was in Santa Monica, do I want to please be a police officer? What I didn't tell them is I don't really like cops. Um, I grew up in the 60s where you got stopped for walking while black on the street for doing absolutely nothing. And I got to tell you, Martin, in the 85 years of my mother being alive, she cursed one time. It was when I got jacked up by the police and she called the station and they told her that what I told her didn't happen. And so after that happening a number of times, my dad finally said to me about law enforcement, he said, you know, you can't change the castle from outside the moat. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm gonna be part of that change that I wanna be. When George Floyd got murdered, I said, okay, it's time now. We've ha I've seen this happen too many times. I, I've gotta be part of that change in a different way. So we started working on a national database to document officers who were fired because of misconduct. What's really interesting is, as you know, I've been an assistant chief of police, and I can tell you, it is really difficult to fire a police officer. It almost takes an act to Congress. And, I, and by the way, again, I've been on both ends of the spectrum. I've been on our union board, so I have defended officers as a union rep. I have to say this, and I'll say it publicly, sometimes for off-duty behavior that was just reprehensible, but that's what we did. So here I am now, documenting officers fired from misconduct. And July 17th, John Lewis passes away. My partner, Maya Guez Salinas, who's also a USC PhD, he's a cybersecurity expert and a former Marine, we're working on this together. He calls me up and says, I got the acronym. We're gonna call it the Lewis Registry. Lewis is gonna stand for Law Enforcement Work Inquiry System. We're gonna name it after John Lewis. And the logo you see of the bridge with the little dot with being John Lewis, Guez, as we affectionately call him, Guez designed this logo on a napkin, sent it to me. We've trademarked it. We've got all kinds of Lewis merch if you want it. And we are now going to launch this month. We're going to offer the database publicly. It'll be available to everybody. And just so everybody understands this, we have taken publicly available information of officers fired in the country there's nothing here that's not already in the public domain and put it in one spot. The real problem we have in America is when officers get fired, they do what we call bounce to another department. Until two weeks ago, California was one of five states in the country 
that when you get fired, you keep your certification for three years. So now we have a database and we've had the public has sent us information that if you live in a town and their roster is public, you can query that name to see if they got fired someplace else. By the way, officers who get fired, 23% of them get reinstated. So we have a process where if an officer is reinstated, we will take him out of the database. And just so everybody understands this, I and my staff are not making the unilateral decision of who goes in the Lewis Registry. We are developing a Lewis Advisory Board of representatives from across the country, from activists to educators to former law enforcement to attorneys, and they are on our board. They will decide who goes in. They will decide who comes out, and I'm really, really proud of that. Well, you know what? Here's my my final thing I got to ask you. We have like maybe 30 seconds left. Give me something on your bucket list that you have not done yet. And you've probably done most of everything. So go for it. I want to thank you so much for being on here. It's been a wonderful, wonderful experience for me. And, you know, I, I just think you're an amazing person. But well, thank your, you. Give me- I, I feel the same way about you. I've been really lucky. Uh, my mentor, who I mentioned previously, I had this bucket list I had to write down. And all the things that I wrote down about, you know, knowing the governor and being appointed by the governor and knowing the president. I didn't know I'd get nominated by the president. I'll tell you, it's going to sound weird. I have been so humbled to travel all over the world. The one place I have not been is the Colosseum in Rome. I want to go to the Colosseum. There's something about going to Italy. So that's on my bucket list. No, I have no desires to jump out of a perfectly good airplane and <laughs> dive. Um, but I, but my bucket list is to go to Rome. Um, that's one thing. The other thing, I'm not a big fan or a guy who gets into this whole hype about loving celebrities, but there is one person I want to meet, and I've met some incredible people throughout my career from Arnold Schwarzenegger to Denzel Washington to, you know, you name it. I mean, to magic. I mean, I've got photos with all these people in my gym, but I want to meet Lewis Hamilton. Okay. Lewis Hamilton is a Formula One racer. He is my guy. He, so my bucket list is going to the Coliseum, meeting Lewis Hamilton, and if I can do a fraction, if I can influence a fraction of the social justice that Lewis Hamilton is doing in Formula One, and again, he's the only guy in Formula One who looks like me, then I will be happy. Well, thank you so much, so much, and and thank you again for being on here, and have a wonderful day, and I'm super excited about uh, everything you're going to do in the future. God bless you, my friend. Thank you, Martin. Really appreciate it. Thank you for allowing me to contribute. Take care.